And now he's going to Nineveh, and when he gets to Nineveh, he preaches a sermon, but it's only a one-sentence sermon, and that's all that matters because all the people of Nineveh decide to repent. The king repents, the people repent, and even the animals repent. And then at the end of Jonah chapter 3, where we left off last week, we're told that God decided to not send the calamity upon the people of Nineveh like he had originally intended. He honored their repentance. Now, look at the end of chapter 3, if you have a a hard copy of your text like I do, and you'll see that if there's a chapter 4, obviously, but if if it ended, if the book of Jonah ended on chapter 3, how would we view Jonah? Well, we would think he's strange, but we would also probably think he's one of the greatest prophets because he goes into to this city and he preaches and there's a citywide repentance of a not only a foreign place, non-Israelite, but they're also violent and they're evil. So we would probably think of Jonah as a great prophet, but it doesn't end there. The story doesn't end there. We get chapter 4 and this is how it begins. But this was very displeasing to Jonah and he became, that word in the NRSV, he became angry. We've dealt with a reluctant prophet so far, a runaway prophet, a sorrowful prophet, and now we're dealing with an angry prophet. What makes Jonah angry? Well, he's angry because the people that he preached to are repenting. You think that he would be happy about preaching a sermon that people responded to. Instead, that's made him angry. But as I've studied Jonah and read it and reread it and thought about what to preach on as we go through each chapter each week, the one thing that I keep coming back to is that, in a way, Jonah is kind of, re- of a, re- he's a reflection of ourselves. It's like looking in the mirror, and, w- and what we see in Jonah, we see some of our own bad attitudes and, and behaviors in ourselves. So I was thinking about Jonah's angry, what makes him angry, and then I thought about myself or maybe you or whoever's watching at home, what makes you angry? And just kind of play with that for a minute. Just think about it. What makes you angry? I've kind of asked a few people that this week, just taking a survey. I asked my daughter the other day, and she said, it makes me angry when my brother sneaks into my room and messes everything up. And I thought, okay, that makes sense. That would maybe make me angry too if I was you. And I was, I've had a few days to think about this, so I've been thinking, what makes me angry? And the first thing that came to mind when I asked myself this question earlier this week was when I'm in traffic or just driving through town or on the interstate or on a highway when somebody rides my bumper. That makes me angry. It bothers me. Um, and I'll tell you why here in just a second. But when somebody is like riding right up on me, I don't know what, they're impatient. I guess they're expecting me if they get real close to my bumper that I'll speed up to the speed that they want to go to. But you know what it makes me want to do? And what I always do when somebody rides my bumper I start pressing the brakes, and I slow down, and I'm intentionally trying to irritate that person. And if you are the person that rides rides somebody's bumper, stop doing it. Uh, It's a sin, okay? So stop stop riding people. A few weeks ago, I was headed home from church. This is a true story. And I got on Teneryville Road. It turns into Tuttle, going into White Oak. We were about to turn into our neighborhood. And about a mile away, a a teenager driving like a brand-new sports car, started riding my bumper, and he had to be like within inches. So I did the typical thing where I started slowing down, and you see those red brake lights indicating to him, back off, and he wouldn't do it. And I was so irritated, so angry with this 
teenager that when I was pulling into the neighborhood, I had rolled my window down and I motioned for him to pull over uh, because I was about to give him a stern talking to. And you know what he did? He just kept driving. He didn't, he didn't listen to my uh, pull over. I don't know why I was thinking that, but I was just so irritated. It, that, those are things that make me angry. That's a pet peeve when people drive reckless. Another thing that makes me angry is when the Internet doesn't work. I've refrained from sharing any particular company, but the company that provides our Internet at home, and it doesn't work, and then you call and you get poor customer service, that makes me angry every time. What else makes me angry? It makes me angry when people criticize the church because I think right now, probably more than ever, there's a lot of church critics out there. There's a lot of people that criticize every little thing a church does or what they should be doing or what they're not doing or I would do it this way. It makes me angry because I see people not just here but all over the place that criticize the church, but they're not really willing to do anything to offer a solution or be part of the solution or love the people within the church. That makes me angry. That bothers me. Okay, so those are just a few things that make me angry, and I'm refraining from, I made a big list earlier this week, and I'm refraining from sharing some of the more personal things with you. Those are just three examples. Think to yourself, what makes you angry? We see in Jonah chapter 4 this angry prophet, and we can relate to that. We all experience anger from time to time, so what makes you angry? And hopefully, maybe you can come up with a few things. And think about what it is that that makes you angry. And now what I really want to ask is why. And I ask that of myself. Why do the things that make me angry, whether you maybe you thought of one thing or you got a whole list of things, why do those things make you angry? Let's get beneath the surface. If we really care about what's going on inside of us, we'll get down to the roots and we'll see and to learn, we'll learn to kind of challenge our own anger and see what's going on, see what's driving that emotion, what's causing us to be angry. So why does it make me angry when somebody rides my bumper? Honestly, the root of that is I think it's really dangerous, especially now that I have kids and they're in car seats in my back seat, and somebody is so impatient and so reckless that they're willing to put our lives and other people's lives at risk. That's why it makes me angry. All right, well, maybe that's a noble thing. But why does not having internet make me angry? Why does that irritate me so much? Well, is it because I'm a paying customer? Maybe, but probably at the root of what causes me to be angry about that is I'm an American, I'm used to instant access, and when I don't get that, I have forgotten how to be patient. And then when I get to the root of it, I think, well, maybe I shouldn't be so angry because I am very blessed. Why does it make me angry when people criticize the church unfairly or when they're not really offering anything to be a part of the solution or continuing to love people and endure? Does it make me angry because the church is the bride of Christ and I think people should be respectful? Or is there something else going on? And I've had to really reflect on that this week. Like, what really makes me angry about that? We live in this culture right now, this year especially, when I'm looking around the room, I'm seeing more masks, and I'm looking on social media, and I'm listening to people talk, and I think, okay, obviously the coronavirus and some of the restrictions and masks, those are the types of things that have driven people to be angry, but what causes that anger? Like, what's going down at the root? Is it something that's rooted in godliness and Christ-centeredness, or is it rooted in pride and ego and American individualism? Like, what causes us to be angry, and that's, I'm not trying to get on a soapbox and make you think of every single thing that makes you angry. My point is, 
when we do experience anger, what causes that? Learn to question that about ourselves. So with Jonah and Jonah chapter 4, we're going to get to the root. We're going to get beneath the surface of what is causing him to be angry. And he prays in verse 2. Here's Jonah's second prayer. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. Think about this. This is his prayer. This is why Jonah is angry. Imagine that. I'm angry at you, God, because you're filled with mercy and love and you're slow to anger. Why would Jonah be angry about that? Well, maybe in a way, Jonah is angry at God because God is not angry with him. We know that we're created in the image of God, and maybe you've heard it said before that sometimes we try to create God in our own image, meaning that whatever we love, we expect God to love. Whatever we hate, we expect God to hate those things. And we kind of get it backwards, and we start wanting God to be more like us rather than us wanting to be more like God. And Jonah, in this prayer, he's basically quoting Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. He knows Scripture. He knows the characteristics of God, and that is what he's using as an accusation against God. You're not angry with me. You're not destroying our enemies like you should be. This is his second prayer. If you remember in Jonah chapter 2, he prays uh, what we would probably call his best prayer from the worst place. In Jonah chapter 2, we focused on that a couple weeks ago. He's in the belly of the fish praying. Now in chapter 4, he's praying his worst prayer from the best place. Well, he's outside of the city, and all these people are repenting, and he's outside sulking in his sorrows and praying and pouting. And then we kind of see that maybe what he's angry about is not just that God isn't angry with him, but he's also angry that he's seeing his enemies forgiven because he would rather see them destroyed. In verse 3, he goes on to pray, and he says, And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Imagine that. I mean, that's the point where he's at. In chapter 2, he had prayed for God to spare his life, and now in chapter 4, he's asking for God to take his life. And as I've kind of dwelled on that the last few weeks, I've thought, you know, if, if there's anybody, maybe it's in the room or watching at home, that's kind of struggled with the same thought, like I, it's better for me to die than to live, Just on a side note, I want to encourage anybody that's listening that needs to hear this to reach out. You're not alone. And because of isolation and what we've gone through, especially the last year, some of those feelings of depression may be amplified. And if you are feeling that, if you're struggling with that, reach out to somebody. There's people in this church that would be glad to talk to you. Just call somebody. Reach out. Reach out to one of the elders. Reach out to myself. You know, set up a time to go see a counselor because that's a serious issue, a serious struggle, and I just want to remind you, you're not alone. And This is where Jonah's at. He's telling God, I can't stand it that you're so loving. I can't stand it that you're forgiving the Ninevites, and I would rather just die. And then look at what God says back to Jonah in verse 4. He says, is it right for you to be angry? In chapter 2, Jonah is praying from a broken heart. In chapter 4, he's praying from an angry heart, and God is questioning him. God doesn't say, Jonah, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of your attitude. I'm sick of your behavior. 
Instead, God asks them a question. Is it right for you to be angry? Now think about maybe if you came, anything came to mind when I asked you a few minutes ago, what makes you angry? And whatever you would have answered that with, whatever it is that makes you angry, imagine God asking you, is it right for you to be angry? And I think what God is doing with Jonah is he's trying to get to the root of what is causing him to be angry. So then we're, we have this little scene where Jonah goes outside of the city in verse 5 and he sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there, and he sat under the shade waiting to see what would become of the city. It's like he's got a folding chair. He unfolds it. He sits down. He crosses his arm, and he's just watching over the city waiting, hoping probably that their repentance isn't genuine, that they stop repenting, and that God eventually will destroy them, and he'll get to watch this city in ruins and flames just like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what he seems to be hope, ha, like hoping as he's sitting here watching and waiting. And then in verse 6 through 8, we get this really strange little interaction between Jonah and God. The Lord appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush or the, the leafy plant, whatever your translation says. Now he's happy. Just a minute ago, he was very angry and wanted to die, and now he's happy because his immediate needs have been met. God has provided this shade, and pay attention to that language, God appointed or God provided. And then in verse 7, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed or provided a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. What's happening here? That's strange. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. So again, for the second time, Jonah's saying, I would rather just die. What's this all about? Why is God, it almost seems like God is is messing with Jonah here. He's toying with him. He provides shade for him, and it's really hot, so Jonah's really happy about that. Then he provides this worm to eat up that shade, and then it's gone. The same language is used at the end of Jonah chapter 1 when God provided a big fish to swallow Jonah. Now God provides this This bush or this leafy plant, now God provides a worm. God is using nature to get through to Jonah. And throughout the story of Jonah, we see that the pagan sailors obey God, the the big fish obeys God, the leafy plant obeys God, the worm obeys God, the Ninevites obey God. Jonah sort of obeys God, but he's way more rebellious than he is willing to obey. Again, I've mentioned the last few weeks, you kind of see these character contrasts as we go along. But what's God trying to teach him here? What is God teaching Jonah by giving him shade and then taking it away? Well, look at verse 9. We're kind of towards the end of this chapter here. Jonah, or God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? Second time, God is questioning him on his anger. And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Man, Jonah is super dramatic. Verse 10 Then the Lord said, this is the end of the book, you were concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? And then boom, it's over. Four chapters. One of the most well-known stories in the Bible, people that are non-believers that are very familiar with the Bible, they know this story because of the big fish, and we spend time in it, we're trying to learn from it, and then all of a sudden it just ends. It ends with God speaking to Jonah and asking him a question, and we don't know how Jonah responds. 
It just ends. Obviously, it seems like God was teaching Jonah a lesson with the leafy plant with the bush because if Jonah is that concerned and that happy and his emotions are up and down about whether or not he has shade, should God not be more concerned with all these Ninevites who are so far from him? That seems to be the point of the episode in verse 6 through 8, but then it just ends, and it's such a strange way to end. But one of the things that I love about the story of Jonah And one of the things that I love about the way that Jonah ends is, I've mentioned this several weeks now, is that I love being able to look at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. And there's a parable that Jesus teaches, and maybe you can think of it, but there's a parable that Jesus teaches that is very similar to the entire book of Jonah. Can you think of what parable that is? If not, I'll give you a hint. It comes from Luke chapter 15, verse verse 11 through 32. It's called the parable of the lost son. Or we also know it as the parable, parable of the prodigal son. And without reading all of it, I will read one verse here in just a second, but without reading the entire parable, which many of you might already be familiar with, there's a dad and two brothers, the younger brother and older brother. The younger brother asks for his inheritance. Even though his dad's not dead yet, which would have been very insulting to his dad, and his dad gives him the inheritance, the younger brother goes off and he just blows all the money, makes horrible decisions, And he winds up making a decision to come back home in hopes that his dad will forgive him and allow him to be a hired servant. And as the younger brother is coming home, what does the father do? The father runs to greet him, throws his arms around him, and celebrates that his lost son has come home. He was dead, and now he's alive. And so the dad throws a big celebration. But then there's the other brother, the older brother, right? He's the one that's always stayed home, that's never strayed far from his father. And the older brother's been working out in the field, and when he comes back, he sees this celebration going on, so he asks somebody what's happening, and they explain it to him. And we're told in Luke chapter 15, verse 28, about the older brother, that he became angry and refused to go in. So his father came out and began to plead with him. You see the parallel between this parable that Jesus tells and how Jonah ends? Is that we have the older brother sitting outside while people are inside repenting and coming back to God, and Jonah is outside pouting about it. He's angry. The older brother in the parable that Jesus tells, he is he's outside the celebration, refusing to go in, and he is also angry. So both the parable of the prodigal son and the book of Jonah have this abrupt, sudden ending, which in some ways I like because it kind of leaves it open-ended. It just kind of makes you think, well, what happened to the older brother? What happened to Jonah? Uh, Every week I'm tempted to just have a sudden and abrupt ending to my sermon just to see what you would do. You know, abrupt endings sometimes can make you think. And that's what happens here, and we're kind of left to think who's lost in the parable of the lost son. Is it the younger brother? Well, traditionally, yes, that's what we think of. But could it also be the older brother? Or could it be both? In the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 15, the younger brother who is lost, he comes home. But the older brother who has been home the whole time, he seems to also be lost, and he's lost in his anger. And as we conclude looking at Jonah, I ask the same question, who's lost here? Is it the Ninevites? Well, yeah, it definitely seems that way, especially historically because of how evil they were. Or is Jonah the one that's lost? Because in the story, the Ninevites are coming back to God, but Jonah is outside pouting, and he's lost in his anger. 
at the end of Jonah, we studied through four chapters, and I spent a lot of time in this the last few months. I will say again, we look at Jonah, we kind of see a reflection of some of our own toxic thoughts and behaviors and attitudes. If we want to do some honest self-evaluation, we have to look within ourselves and see how God is trying to work on us just like God is working on Jonah. Have you ever found yourself resisting God? Resisting God's will. And I don't just mean God's specific will for your life, your specific life, but I mean God's general will. Do you struggle with loving people, forgiving people? Do you struggle with resisting sin and temptation? If so, then you can identify with Jonah in chapter 1. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been sick or in trouble or in a desperate need and you find yourself turning to God? Well, that's Jonah chapter 2. You can relate to Jonah But even more than that, if maybe you find yourself only praying when you're desperate, then you can really relate to Jonah. That's Jonah chapter 2. Chapter 3, Jonah gets the second chance. If you've ever received a second chance, if you've ever had to give somebody a second chance, if you've received a second chance from God or from somebody else, well, then you can relate to Jonah. But pressing even a little further, if you have people in your life that you dislike, that you can't stand, people that have wronged you, maybe that's what we would consider your enemy. If you've ever wished for them not to prosper but to suffer, well, then you can identify with Jonah because that's where he's at. He would much rather the Ninevites suffer and be destroyed than be forgiven. If you've ever dealt with some misguided anger, You've dealt with anger just in general, well, then you can probably identify with Jonah. What makes you angry? What sets you off? What's, what gets under your skin? And like what God is doing with Jonah in chapter 4 is he's asking Jonah, he's questioning Jonah to figure out what's causing that, Jonah. What's going on with you? Learn to question your own anger and some of your own emotions And I'm not saying it's wrong or you should ever be angry, but learn to get beneath the surface, get to the roots, figure out what's going on and what's driving that. And is it rooted in something that's godly? Now, there's a gap from who we are, who I am, what we are, to what we want to be. As a church, we say we want to make, mature, multiply faithful followers of Jesus. So one of the things that we're committed to doing is to not only trying to make disciples, and we would love for those who are not in Christ to be baptized into Christ, but we also want to help people grow. No matter what age you are, how long you've been on this faith journey, we're trying, that's the mature part. And part of maturing in Christ is realizing that there's some gaps in our life. There's some gaps from where we are now, the way that we think, maybe the way that we deal with our anger or our prayer life or or resisting God, whatever it may be, there's a gap from where we are to where we need to be. Maybe you could call it the Jonah to Jesus gap. And if, it, if you've been able to identify with anything that we've talked about in this series or today with the anger part, then maybe you're noticing a gap in your own life. And what we want to do each week is we try to help each other, co-disciple each other, help each other mature in Christ, is we want to help each other start to close that gap. So today, if you are seeing and noticing the gap in your own life, if you struggled 
and you're feeling like you're in the darkness right now, like Jonah was in chapter 4, if you are filled with anger, if you see that gap in your own life, and if we can help you in any way, we would love for those in the room to pray with you, for those who are watching at home, if you want to reach out to somebody, call somebody, send an email to the elders, we would be glad to help you take that next step to bridge that gap, whether it's through baptism, through prayer, through action, through accountability, whatever it may be, please let us know how we can help. I want to invite you to stand back up and Tony back up here to continue to sing. As the mountain.